Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Holden. He's Professor of Psychology and Principal Investigator of the Personality and Romantic Relationships Lab at Appalachian State University in the US. His research focuses on topics like personality and evolutionary psychology, romantic relationships, the Exaco model of personality, self-esteem, main retention behavior, and others. So, Dr. Olden, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, an honor to be here. <laughs> okay, great. So, let me first ask you a general question before we get into personality traits and main retention behaviors and stuff like that. How do you look at the relationship between personality psychology and evolutionary psychology? Because you do a bit of both, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot that we can gain by looking at, you know, both of these fields and thinking about how they come together. Um, so, you know, often I'm kind of thinking about personality from this perspective of, you know, evolution by natural selection. How has this shaped the traits? How has this um, given us maybe some deeper insight to the traits um, that we often talk about in personality psychology? Um, so, yeah, again, I think there's a lot that we can really do to marry those two approaches. Um, you know, so we might talk a little bit about how, um, you know, certain aspects of um, the environment or certain uh, evolutionary pressures are shaping aspects of personality. Um, and I think, you know, by combining these things, we're really building the strongest models of personality uh, possible. Um, and we see this show up in a, a few different ways. Um, you know, I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but, um, you know, with the Hexaco model of personality, you mentioned that in the intro, um, there's a lot that was done there to really think about these traits from an evolutionary perspective and how they may have helped us solve uh, adaptive problems. Um, so, you know, with that, they've even got some interstitial traits like uh, altruism versus antagonism. And they did that to really kind of map onto what we see uh, in the non-human world um, as well. Um, so I like to think of these things as, as complementing each other. I don't think that, you know, either one one field or the other has um, all the answers or the best answers. Um, so, again, yeah, I think just really kind of bringing them together um, to strengthen those two perspectives. Um, I haven't done much personally to really look at personality from an evolutionary perspective. I'm often relying on the work of other people. Um, so folks like David Buss have done quite a bit with this and uh, David Schmidt as well. Um, and then also the folks that developed the Hexaco, like I said, have done a lot to really uh, highlight those evolutionary underpinnings. Um, so I haven't done too much, but I'm, I'm usually using it as kind of a way to build the foundation for the work that I'm doing and, and just kind of shaping the way that I think about those traits. In your work, you use the Exaco model of personality, but I mean, at least as far as I understand it, the most used model of personality in personality psychology is the big five. So is the Exaco better than the big five or is it better at least to understand certain aspects of people's personality and behavior that we can we can't really understand by using the big five all right yeah so i might stir the pot a little bit when i say this but i'll go ahead and say it um i think it's a better model overall um and i say that as someone who was heavily steeped and trained in the big five um but you know one of the things i like about the hexaco again is that it's pulling from that evolutionary perspective um, but they also kind of started from this point of 
using the big five and realizing that it was falling short, particularly in some cross-cultural contexts. Um, so Michael Ashton and Kibium Lee were the folks that really kind of developed the Hexaco model. Um, and they were looking at some differences in Eastern and Western samples. Uh, and every time they tried to validate the big five, they kept seeing the sixth factor of honesty, humility pop up. Um, so, and they see, they saw it a little bit more strongly in Eastern cultures. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's, it's just adding some variance is giving us a deeper understanding um, of these traits. There's some revisions to aspects of the big five, but you can pretty much think of um, the Hexaco as the big five plus honesty, humility. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it just, it, it doesn't unnecessarily add an, another variable. Um, I would say it's actually providing good insight um, and giving us some detail there. I also really like it because um, we can start to make the bridge into dark personality traits by looking at uh, honesty, humility. Uh, so we tend to see that things like narcissism, psychopathy, machiavellianism, these things are negatively correlated uh, and usually quite strongly negatively correlated with uh, honesty, humility. Um, so when I teach about this in class, sometimes I propose it as, well, this is a six factor model of personality, but it's almost eking into this territory of being a nine or, you know, a 10 factor model of personality. If you throw in some of the other dark personality traits there, like sadism. Um, so yeah, I think it really just pins down a lot of different things and allows us to start looking at um, broader connections. Um, so those would be the things that I would point to in making that argument. Um, I, I don't know if big five folks would have counterpoints to that, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly, um, at least in my research has allowed me to really start understanding uh, things that we may not have seen with some aspects of the big five. <laughs> so let's apply those personality traits to try to understand some uh, human behaviors. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's start with mate retention strategy. So sure. uh, how are personality traits associated with that? Yeah, yeah, this is a great question because it kind of goes back to what you opened with where we're blending this approach of, you know, using evolutionary theory and personality theory. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really interesting connections. Um, so the way that I think about it is, you know, there's this whole range of mate retention behaviors. Um, and it includes things like, you know, showing love and affection for your partner, all the things that we would do, uh, or you might typically think of doing to maintain the relationship to um, some pretty negative and, you know, derogatory things um, towards the partner or towards rivals. So it really kind of runs this gamut. Uh, you know, David Buss put it as ranging from vigilance to violence. Um, so, you know, I think looking at those, it's interesting because now we have this map of what people do in relationships um, and how they go about maintaining those. Um, but there's still this question of why do we have such a range and are there different people that are going to fall into different types of these mate retention behaviors? Um, and I think personality and you know, particularly the Hexaco um, really allows us to start seeing some of that. Um, so in some of my own work, I've looked at uh, you know, the Hexaco, particularly things like um, honesty, humility and how that influences mate retention. And kind of in short, what we tend to see is that folks that score higher in this trait of honesty, humility, folks that are more concerned with treating people fairly and acting in this sincere way, uh, basically make for really good partners, right? So they're doing things like um, all of the benefit provisioning behaviors um, where you're showing love and affection for your partner, you know, maybe helping them with a certain task. Um, all of these things that signal that you're investing in the relationship and that 
um, it's going to be beneficial for your partner to continue investing in the relationship. Um, so I think that's a really interesting connection. Um, we see some connections with the big five as well with things like agreeableness and um, conscientiousness. Um, but yeah, it really just helps us answer this question of, you know, why are different people using or which people are using different major retention behaviors? Mm -hmm. So is it the case that the traits from the Exaco model, I mean, some of them are uh, positively correlated with healthy, long-during relationships, mm. or, and others are correlated negatively with that? I mean, does it work that way? Yeah, we can we can get close to that. I'm always I'm always confident to say you know these are the things that make for a good partner. They make for the best relationships because um, I think there's just going to be so much variability from relationship to relationship. Um, but yeah, I think certainly we can see that there are there are certain patterns and there are things that I would say um, would lead to you know at least kind of at the level of averages um, better relationships and, and healthier relationships. Um, so I mentioned honesty, humility. I think that's a big one. Um, kind of more broadly, just in uh, relationship science in general, we tend to see things like, um, you know, things that would be associated with conscientiousness and agreeableness um, are really good predictors of, you know, the length of relationships, satisfaction within relationships. Um, so I would point to those as well. It's interesting because conscientiousness, you don't really, you don't, you don't think of conscientiousness as being something interpersonal, right? It's kind of how someone um, structures their life and how they tend to prefer, you know, certain patterns of organization. Um, but it seems as though that really kind of carries over, um, maybe particularly if we have folks that are high in agreeableness or maybe also high in honesty, humility, uh, it carries over in how they see their partner. And they're kind of taking the same diligence that they would use to regulate themselves and using that to regulate their relationships in a positive way. Um, now that I say that, it sounds kind of manipulative, right? But um, you know, they're, they're interested in maintaining those things um, and promoting those. Um, on the negative side, um, you know, we tend to see folks that are um, disagreeable, so they'd score low on that trait of agreeableness, um, tend to maybe engage in, you know, some of those more negative um, mate retention behaviors or just relationship behaviors um, broadly. Some research suggesting that things like um, higher levels of extroversion, um, people at a higher risk for infidelity. Um, so, you know, maybe just through interacting with a number of different people and kind of engaging with those folks, it opens up the opportunity for, um, you know, either mate poaching or just breaking up with a relationship and moving into a new one. Um, you know, when we kind of get outside of that a little bit, if, um, if you're interested, you know, there's things like self-esteem and how that predicts um, relationship functioning and relationship success uh, and kind of the takeaway there is that folks that are higher or have higher self-esteem um, tend to make for better partners and have um, higher relationship satisfaction and longer lasting relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will come back to self-esteem later on in, in the interview. Uh, when we talk about mate retention strategies, are there different categories of them or mm -hmm. how does it work exactly? Yeah, so that's something that's really helpful, I think, to go back to. Um, and there's a few different ways of slicing up mate retention behaviors. Um, so they kind of run this this pretty wide gamut of um, vigilance to violence or kind of negative to positive. Um, and usually people will talk about two broad domains of 
mate retention. So kind of going top down, um, we tend to divide it, or at least I personally tend to divide it into those benefit provisioning behaviors and cost inflicting behaviors. Um, so kind of ultimately they both serve the same goal. They want to maintain the relationship and prevent defection, um, but they kind of get through those things by different means. And so again, with benefit provisioning, um, we tend to see that you know, they're trying to incentivize, these behaviors are, are targeted at incentivizing staying in the relationship. So you're signaling to your partner that you're investing and then that's uh, worthwhile for them to kind of reinvest in you. Um, in cost inflicting, you're making it costly to leave the relationship. So should the partner defect, um, there's going to be a high risk or high rate of cost associated with that. Um, so that's where some of the derogatory comments come in um, to kind of maybe change the way the partner sees themselves. There's also derogatory comments towards potential rivals. Um, so kind of bringing down um, their perceived mate value um, by engaging in those behaviors. So those would be the two um, big domains. Sometimes people will talk about intersexual uh, versus intrasexual manipulation as two broader domains as well. Um, so that'd be kind of what you're doing to manipulate or influence your partner versus potential rivals. Um, I haven't used that distinction quite as much in my own research. Um, but then below those two dimensions are um, a number of different categories. Uh, so there we tend to see things like um, direct guarding, um, vigilance. Um, I should have had the chart in front of me. I always forget which which uh, piece is piece because I'm or which piece falls where because I'm, I'm so focused on the domains. Uh, but there's categories under those. There's five different categories. Um, and then there's actually tactics below that. So you can get down to the level of very specific behaviors uh, and start seeing those. Mm -hmm. Do these domains and categories go associated with sets of personality traits? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, kind of depending on the trait and uh, depending on which line of research you look at, you can start to see uh, different patterns. Um, but yeah, I would say in general, you know, scores on um, honesty, humility are going to be associated with, uh, particularly high scores are going to be associated with more of those benefit provisioning than all the categories that would be underneath that. Um, things like agreeableness, high scores on agreeableness will kind of push people into more of those um, benefit provisioning behaviors. Also on the low end of agreeableness, we tend to see stronger associations with um, cost inflicting. Uh, conscientiousness, we tend to see people who are more conscientious uh, engage in more of those benefit provisioning behaviors. Um, you know, so we can kind of start seeing some patterns there. Um, it also gets interesting if you move into um, some of the dark personality traits, um, particularly things like Machiavellianism, we tend to see um, being associated with some of those cost-inflicting behaviors. Um, narcissism, it depends kind of on which um, which category you're looking at under those domains or even which tactic, um, but um, we do tend to see some associations there. Um, and then there's also some interesting connections when you start moving into more um, pathological models of personality. So kind of looking at things that would be associated with certain personality disorders um, through things like the PID-5, which kind of mirrors um, the alternate model for diagnosis of um, personality disorders and really also kind of mirrors the big five um, so there you're talking about traits like negative affect and detachment, um, where negative affect, negative affect would be kind of an analog to neuroticism and detachment would be uh, an analog to extroversion. 
Um, and kind of following that, we see similar patterns. So folks that are higher negative affect uh, tend to engage in more of those cost inflicting behaviors. Uh, and folks that are detached kind of interestingly seem to be, as you might expect, I guess, kind of removed. But when they uh, do engage in mate retention behaviors, it does seem to be more in line with those cost inflicting behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, this just came to my mind now. Uh, do these things connect in any way with attachment styles? Because, I mean, those also uh, predict, at least to some extent, how people establish romantic relationships, right? Right, right. yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I myself haven't looked into that quite as much. Um, someone who's been on your show, though, has, Nicole Barbaro. Uh, so she's done some interesting work with that. Um, other folks have as well. Um, and I'm rusty on this, so I apologize. But um, from what I remember, you know, the more secure attachment style seems to be associated with um, more of those benefit provisioning behaviors. Um, so it, it would fall in line pretty much as you would expect um, from what I remember. Um, now, I don't know if it would really depend on, you know, how you break up insecure attachment styles because there's there's a few different ways to look at those. Um, you know, so some people will fo uh, focus on kind of the disorganized versus the detached and um, things like that. So there might be something more there, but I'd imagine, um, if anything, they're going to engage in those cost-inflicting behaviors. Mm -hmm. I know that you've studied the relationship between uh, personality trait, in this case agreeableness, and mm -hmm. the performance of oral sex. In I mean, when it's men to women to woman or male to female so mm -hmm. tell us about it yeah so in that case it was mostly looking at um heterosexual men um and their agreeableness and how that influenced um their mate retention behaviors and whether or not they engaged in oral sex and at what frequency um, that was a really interesting project um because it was really marrying a lot of different lines of research um you know so so far we've kind of talked about how personality and mate retention come together and inform what's happening in relationships. Um, so here we are kind of tacking on uh, oral sex as part of that. Um, and that starts to get into some of the stuff with sperm competition theory uh, and kind of moving into whether or not um, some of the adaptations that we see in the non-human realm kind of cross over into uh, the human realm. But the basic idea there was that engaging in oral sex was kind of an extension of um, these benefit provisioning behaviors that we would typically see. Um, and we do tend to see a strong correlation between agreeableness and benefit provisioning behaviors. Um, so it stands to reason that, you know, we would see um, ultimately kind of what we saw in the model there where folks that are higher or men who are higher in agreeableness and who are performing more of these benefit provisioning behaviors tend to also engage in more of those oral sex behaviors. Um, so, yeah, it was really kind of fun to see that come together. Um, I think there was a lot of good theory behind it, but you never know going into it. Um, it was partially mediated, right? so we can't really um, make the strongest claims there of mediation, but it does seem like men who are more agreeable and who engage in more of those um, benefit provisioning behaviors are more likely to engage um, in oral sex. Um, and this is also interesting because it taps into what we know from relationship science more broadly um, we tend to see that folks that are agreeable are kind of willing to, you know, perspective take and, and, and do more to kind of find that common ground with their partner. Um, and, you know, it, we could argue that engaging in oral sex would be kind of part of that or, you know, thinking about 
um, your partner's sexual pleasure um, would be something that could motivate that. Um, so it was kind of a way to see, you know, all these systems line up and all of these different backgrounds line up. Um, so it was a really cool paper in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you also study humor. So do you tackle it from an evolutionary perspective or is it more from a personality psychology perspective? Yeah, it's, it's a little more in the camp of um, from a personality psychology perspective. Yeah. Uh, just a little bit of background on that. When I was earning my master's, um, I was involved in a lab with Dr. Tom Ford, who, who studies humor and studies the prejudice releasing effects of, of humor. So he's kind of studying it from a social psychological lens there. Um, and kind of the basic idea that he's been working on is how does humor affect interpersonal interactions and perceptions of other people? Um, so often there, what we're looking at is, you know, the different styles or types of humor and how that's influencing um, relationships or how it's influencing the person. Um, so, you know, one of the papers there was looking at different humor styles and, um, whether or not that correlated with some of the things that we kind of wrap up into subjective well-being or, or happiness. Um, so in that case, it was really kind of like a personality variable. Uh, but in some of the other work, it's looking at more of the, the social dynamics and, and how humor can influence um, interactions. Um, so not much really from an evolutionary perspective there. Um, I know there's some folks out there that have done some stuff with humor from an evolutionary perspective. Um, that's really fascinating stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I kind of take off my evolutionary psych hat and put on a more of a social personality psych hat with that research. Yeah. Uh, what are these uh, humor styles? I mean, do, do they have different, uh, do they fall into different categories as the, uh, not the personality traits, but the mate retention strategies or not? Yeah, so we, we can kind of talk about four different humor styles. Uh, so it, it kind of it is similar to the mate retention behaviors where we kind of have one camp that we might say is more positive and one camp that's a little more negative. Um, so within the positive camp, we tend to talk about affiliative humor styles uh, and then also self-enhancing humor style. Um, so affiliative would be you know using humor to build connections uh, with the people that you're interacting with. Um, self-enhancing would be using humor in a way that makes light of the situation without really kind of detracting from the person. Um, it's kind of, it's almost kind of like mindfulness in a way, or, um, you know, having that perspective of, um, you know, maybe I had this bad situation pop up, but that's just part of it. Uh, you make a joke about how awful it is and you move on. Um, and that seems to be associated with, um, some of those aspects of subjective well-being as does that affiliative style. Um, but then the negative camp where we have um, aggressive forms uh, of humor. Um, so there it might be um, cracking jokes at the expense of other people um, or, you know, maybe, you know, in more extreme cases, using someone um, as an example, kind of stereotyping or uh, something like that, using that as part of the joke. Uh, and then there's also kind of this uh, fourth style of um, self-debasing humor, um, Forgetting, that's not the actual term there. I'm, I'm drawing uh, Self-deprecating. Self-deprecating, yeah. Um, yeah, and with self-deprecating, it's, it's pretty much as it sounds. So, you know, they'd be making fun of themselves and making jokes about themselves. And that tends to be associated with um, some negative self-views and can actually kind of detract from um, subjective well-being. Mm-hmm. 
since we also we're also talking about romantic relationships, does humor play an important role in them? Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, you know, personally, I haven't done much to marry those two lines of research. Um, so I haven't looked at humor in the context of romantic relationships, um, but I know other folks have, um, and I know it's kind of an important variable. Um, so, you know, kind of from start to finish, uh, humor and kind of similarity in humor uh, does seem to be predictive of relationship success. Um, so, you know, being funny is, is typically attractive, right? So that would be something that would initiate that relationship. Um, but then, you know, I think one thing that happens in relationships, particularly long-term relationships, is that, um, you know, people actually become more similar. Um, so there's interesting research on how personality shifts as, as people are in uh, long-term relationships. And I would imagine the same thing would be happening with, with humor and kind of the humor styles that people engage in. Um, and if I had to hazard a guess, I'd imagine that what happens over time with humor in romantic relationships is that um, people kind of develop their own systems of, of jokes and, and inside jokes and things that they find funny. Um, and that would kind of promote the relationship um, and would make people happier, more satisfied with their relationship and would really kind of deepen those connections with their partner. Um, totally speaking, I know that, you know, my partner and I, um, we have our own system of humor and if someone were to pop in, it would sound like we're, you know, we're off our rockers, but, um, yeah, I'd imagine humor would kind of carry about the relationship through multiple stages. Mm -hmm. Can we know if someone is happy or unhappy based on their humor style? Yeah. Another, um, great question. Um, and I would probably preface it by saying I'm not someone who's who's quite as steeped in positive psychology um, and happiness studies in general. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think kind of in the same way that we could say that, you know, certain relationship behaviors promote satisfaction in those relationships, certain humor styles are going to um, do many of the same things, maybe just in a uh, more broader interpersonal context. Um, so someone who's using those affiliative forms of humor those self-enhancing forms of humor, that's going to be perceived by other people. Um, they're kind of signaling to others, I would say, how they view themselves. That's going to kind of be reciprocated back to them. Um, and all of that would kind of come together um, to promote, uh, you know, things like higher self-esteem, happiness, um, and all of those things overall. So, um, yeah, I think it would be one of, the, one of the many factors that would go into that, but I think it would be a pretty good one. Um, and you know, the opposite would be true if they were using some of those um, self-deprecating or uh, aggressive forms of humor. Mm -hmm. So let's now talk about self-esteem. Uh, earlier, you've already mentioned the relationship between self-esteem uh, and if someone has a good, long-lasting relationship or not. So could you tell us again about that? Yeah, um, so there's a long line of research um, from folks like Sandra Murray, um, some of it I've done as well, and some other folks have kind of brought all these different um, components of self-esteem together. But, uh, you know, in general, we talk about self-esteem being high or low. Um, so it has high self-esteem, that's more positive evaluations. Um, uh, if you use the sociometer model, um, which I think is a really compelling argument for self-esteem, it's also suggesting that they're getting signals of inclusion from other people, and that's bolstering uh, self-esteem. Whereas the opposite would be true with low self-esteem. Um, so with low self-esteem, we're going to have more negative views of the self, 
um, and that'd be signals of exclusion, um, which particularly in an evolutionary environment would be costly. Um, so we would argue that, you know, self-esteem is kind of this adaptation that tracks status, um, ultimately it kind of changes how we see ourselves and shapes our self-use, but it's coming from this interpersonal domain. Um, and I, I like that framework because it really allows you to start moving into what it does in relationships uh, pretty easily. Um, so folks that are higher in self-esteem um, tend to report greater relationship satisfaction. Their partners tend to report greater relationship satisfaction. Um, and I think some of the more interesting findings there are that, um, you know, when faced with challenges in relationships, uh, people with high self-esteem kind of take it in stride. And they think about, you know, as opposed to being defensive and kind of removing themselves from that uh, problem, they think about solutions to it. And they're often focused on solutions that are kind of really incorporating their partner's perspective. Um, so it's it's less of a dead end for them and it's more of just maybe a bump in the road. Um, the opposite is true with folks with low self-esteem. Um, so folks with low self-esteem who are in um, romantic relationships um, will take on more of that defensive approach um, and will kind of retract uh, from their partner or in other cases will even kind of start to derogate their partner in an attempt to maybe change their partner's views of themselves and kind of bring down their partner's self-esteem. Um, so it's, it's much more of a defensive strategy versus this kind of communal relationship building strategy that we would see with high self-esteem. Mm -hmm. Is high self-esteem associated with some personality traits and low self-esteem with others? Yeah, in general, we can, we can see some connections. Um, some of these are a little muddier than others, uh, but with, you know, if we're coming from Big Five or Hexaco, uh, we tend to see usually positive correlations between extroversion and self-esteem. Um, one aspect of extroversion is actually uh, social self-esteem resurgency is uh, kind of that's been used for quite a while with uh, extroversion. Uh, so the, we do tend to see a positive correlation there, and it, it, it's what allows basically what allows extroverted people to be extroverted. Um, if we move into some of the dark personality traits, that's where I'd say we start to see stronger connections with self-esteem. Um, so of course with narcissism, which you know by definition is this exaggerated self-view, um, we tend to see pretty strong positive correlations with self-esteem and narcissism. Um, we see similar correlations with other aspects of the dark triad, but I'd say really narcissism is um, kind of driving that. Um, going back to some of the stuff with the big five, there are some connections usually with things like agreeableness, um, conscientiousness. If you move into Hexaco, um, some of those hold as well. Agreeableness is slightly shifted around uh, to basically incorporate that six factor, um, but we still see some connections there. Um, and if I remember correctly, we tend to see positive correlations between honesty, humility, and uh, self-esteem, high self-esteem. Mm -hmm. What is relationship contingent self-esteem? Yeah, so within self-esteem, we usually, um, as I, at least as I was describing it, we're kind of framing it as what we might call secure self-esteem or just kind of your typical overall um, self-esteem. Um, but an interesting line of research um, that's I would say is a little more recent is, is getting into what we might call fragile uh, forms of self-esteem. Um, and within fragile, we have contingent forms of self-esteem, right? So fragile, by definition, uh, would be 
you know, feelings of self-worth that are kind of tenuous. They rely, uh, they rely on input from other people and they're going to be variable. Uh, secure, on the other hand, you know, particularly secure high self-esteem. These folks are resilient. Their views of themselves are resilient and they're not going to be faced by, you know, any one thing. Um, so again, within fragile, we talk about contingent. Contingent um, gets its name from the fact that these folks are um, basically staking their self-worth on a particular area in life or a particular domain of life. Um, and there's been a number of these proposed. Um, I don't think by any means those are exhaustive. I think in any domain of life that you can be getting feedback, you could have contingent self-esteem. Um, and what that would mean is that successes and failures in that domain, how you do or how you perceive yourself as um, you know, succeeding or failing is going to determine your overall views of self uh, or your overall self-esteem. Um, so then relationship contingent self-esteem occurs when someone is kind of narrowly focused on their relationship, um, whether they're in one and also um, the kind of nature of it, whether they're satisfied with it, to determine their views of themselves. Um, so there, any sort of event within the relationship um, is really going to drive folks with relationship contingent self-esteem um, to have different views of the self, right? So things are going well. That's a good sign. They might have more positive evaluations there, um, but even pretty small things like maybe arguing over what to have for dinner or something like that um, to them could be seen as this huge failure or this huge sign of um, kind of the impending breakup or you know problems with the relationship, and that in turn is going to drive down their views of themselves. Um, so they're they're very narrowly focused on that one domain, and that's determining their overall views of themselves. Um, and with secure, on the other hand, we tend to see that people are kind of pulling from all of these different domains and they're pulling, you know, from successes and failures in all of those domains. And so maybe they get a bad test grade, but, you know, everything else is going great and they're excited about what's happening in the weekend. So that's kind of balancing it out. And that's what allows it to be a little more resilient. Um, so yeah, with relationship continued self-esteem, they're just deriving feelings of self-worth from that romantic relationship. Mm. Does it go associated with some personality traits? Yeah, so we tend to see that, um, um, well, you know, kind of first of all, there's a connection between self-esteem level and contingent self-esteem. Um, so we see that folks that have uh, any form of contingent, but particularly with relationship contingent self-esteem as well, we tend to see a lower uh, overall self-esteem. Um, but then, yeah, we do tend to see... Um, some connections with some of the uh, hexaco traits. They're a little muddy. They're not always, you know, perfect. Um, I've seen connections with um, honesty, humility, and agreeableness, uh, but in other studies, I've seen those go away. Um, so that's something I'm still kind of working on and trying to, to pin down a bit. Um, we also see some connections with things like um, borderline personality disorder and you know s uh, symptoms of that. Um, not to say that relationship contingent self-esteem is pathological, we would consider it um, kind of in this realm of, of normal personality, um, but interesting in the sense that there's some similarity there. Um, and I think a lot of it stems from, um, you know, kind of this, this uh, strong focus and almost kind of obsession with um, the relationship, but also maybe some black and white, black and white thinking there and kind of taking things out of uh, proportion um, and kind of seeing them as, you know, just being uh, this sign of impending doom when they're really not. It's a small um, disagreement or maybe a small problem within the relationship. Um, 
So be kind of in a, in a nutshell, some of those connections there. Yeah. So you've also studied the relationship between partner attractiveness, number of sexual rivals, and in-pair copulation frequency. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, that's also kind of going back to um, some of the stuff with the paper there on oral sex. Um, and yeah, really kind of building off of um, what we know from sperm competition theory uh, more broadly and kind of seeing if we can map some of that onto uh, human behavior and seeing if what happens in the non-human world um, maps onto what humans are doing. Um, so, you know, in the non-human animal realm, we tend to see um, some adaptations um, and one of those, what, some adaptations for um, sperm competition and one of those is um, higher rates of uh, copulation. Um, so we tend to see this a lot in birds. Uh, they're a really good example for that. Um, copulation frequency in birds is, is pretty much directly correlated with sperm competition risk. Um, so we were bringing that into the human realm and one of the ways that we did that was um, by kind of, I would say indirectly, uh, but still getting at sperm competition risk by looking at uh, number of uh, co-workers, number of potential rivals, basically. Uh, so again, this was in a heterosexual male context where um, we're looking at you know, men's perceptions of um, sperm competition risk, men's perceptions of their partner and how that influenced um, the in-pair copulation frequency. So copulation with the partner. Um, and basically what we saw is that um, if the female partner had a higher number of uh, friends or coworkers that were male um, and the partner, the male partner saw their female partner as more attractive um, there was a self-reported greater desire for copulation frequency. Uh, and the argument there would be that there are kind of these psychological mechanisms that are assessing those uh, risk of sperm competition um, and that the male is trying to kind of counter that by engaging in uh, more frequent sex with their partner. Um, and then what that would do is you know, increase the likelihood of reproductive success, also drive up paternal certainty um, and we counter some of those risks uh, from sperm competition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one last question. Do you think that all of this knowledge that we have about personality and evolutionary psychology, that people could apply it to improve their romantic relationships? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. That's one I, I think about quite a bit. Um, sometimes I tell people, you know, because when I tell people I study relationships, they're often like, oh, so do you use that? And, um, you know, my partner's also a psychologist. So then there's the question of, like, are you guys analyzing each other? And I always tell people, first of all, I'm, I'm more of a data scientist than anything. Um, but, you know, using this knowledge, um, this might make me sound like a total nerd, but using this knowledge is kind of like using the force from Star Wars. Right. So if you use it in the wrong way, it can corrupt you. Um, but if you use it in the right way, it can be great. Um, so I think that, you know, if you used it in the appropriate way, it would be really helpful. Um, and I would just caution people from going down the rabbit hole of worrying about, oh, you know, I have this negative view of myself or I'm, I'm not feeling quite as strongly about myself right now. Does that mean that I'm going to, you know, have this conflict with my partner? Am I going to start engaging in cost inflicting behaviors? Um, you know, maybe that's just my anxiety, but you know, I, I, I can see how it is, it's easy to start slipping into that. Um, and that would, I would say, ultimately kind of be like shooting yourself in the foot, would really just detract from the relationship. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think using the knowledge and using it carefully um, can really help you in situations where, you know, maybe you and your partner are having a conflict and maybe it feels like you can't quite reach a resolution. Um, you could pull from some of what we know from relationship science, from, you know, evolutionary theory, from personality psychology, um, and, you know, approach it in a slightly different way um, and try and get at that conflict in a, a different way and ultimately try and resolve that um, in a way that's mutually beneficial and is communal and is, you know, thinking about both persons' needs. Um, so, yeah, just use it, use it wisely, I would say. But yeah. Very interesting. So before we go, where can people find your work on the Internet? Yeah, so um, I think most of my stuff should be up on um, my website. I, I know I need to update that. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is Prof. CJ Holden. Um, I'm often tweeting preprints there that I've put together. Um, also, if you're familiar with OSF, um, find, you can find me pretty easily on OSF. All of my recent research is up there. Um, so from the moment we have hypotheses to collecting data to analyzing data, you can see all of that there. Um, so that's probably where I would orient people um, primarily. Um, but yeah, if you can't find anything out there for my work, I always welcome emails. So feel free to send me an email. Um, it's my last name, Holden CJ, my initials at appstate.edu. Um, so feel, feel free to reach out there. Um, and let me know if you have any questions with that. But yeah, those would be kind of the big three sites. Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Olden, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really fun to talk to you. Yeah, great. Thanks, and I, I really appreciate it. And um, I, it was, like I said, it was an honor. I know a number of folks from Oakland, my alma mater, have been on the show. So it feels kind of nice to be um, part of the... Oakland family, but also part of the dissenter family as well. <laughs> Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing this channel for three years, bringing you top academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Even one dollar would already be a great help. Otherwise, you also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. And please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button if you liked the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windager, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spigny, Phil Kavanagh, Cory Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, 
Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Librant, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adaner Usmani, My, Pro My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.